Okay, as usual, you know, I, I like asking questions. So here's here's a question for us to consider for today. Are you living like who you are? So we've come to, whoops, we've come to chapter four, which is now kind of changing directions because in the first three chapters, it's been giving us doctrine and now we're getting into the duty section. So th this is a, a really important question because th this this question here is is showing us the link between our actions and our identity. So those first three chapters shows you I, your identity. And now we're going to see, well, based on that identity, how are we to live? And I found an example. Maybe this, this will be helpful to you. Uh, did any of you know who these people are? Some of you might. Anyway, uh, Princess Margaret, when she was a lot younger, as a young girl, uh, I, I had read at one point she was sitting beside her mother, Queen Elizabeth, and this was at the princess uh, princess's first presentation to the British public, uh, and she was called upon to walk up to the microphone and say a few words to all the gathered dignitaries there. And as she was preparing to to go up, her mother leaned over to her and said, you are a princess, walk like one. So why would the queen say that to the princess? Because who she is, which is obviously a princess, should affect how she walks. Uh, how, how, how is a princess supposed to walk? Well, hopefully with dignity. So do you do you see the the link between your actions and your identity? There there is one, and it's the same in in the spiritual realm in the Christian world here. So who we are affects how we should act, and that's the basic principle of life to which the Apostle Paul is appealing here as he's opening up this duty part of the book. And so in the first three chapters, he's basically said, "Hey, you are a child of God." You are a child of God. What a wonderful thing. We've been adopted into his family. He's, he's shown a lot of grace and love into us. And now in the fourth chapter, he's basically saying, okay, because you're a child of God, now act like one. And so you say, well, what does that look like? Well, you need to read all the way to, to the end of the book. So in chapters five and six, you'll get a lot of detail on that. So Paul's telling us how we're to act. So, Let's look at uh, these precious words here. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I got three questions that I'm going to uh, ask uh, from the text, and the text is going to answer these three questions 
And they all have to do with this first part here in verse 1. There's a connection here to verse 1. So here's the first question. Oh, well, here's the here's my proposition, first of all, is that uh, what, what are we doing with this text? Well, God wants you to do something. He wants your practical living to match your spiritual position. See, your spiritual position is your identity in Christ. You are a child of God, therefore there should be appropriate actions to go with that. That's the practical living part. So in verse 1, we see there's a call upon every believer's life. So what is the call to the worthy life? Because verse 4 tells us uh, here where Paul's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what what is that all about? Well, first of all, it involves Paul's pleading. It involves Paul's pleading. So notice Paul here, he made, uh, he often does this. He, he makes no apologies for pleading with people to do what he knew was right. This is the right thing to do. And it's interesting, uh, the ESV says, I urge you. Uh, New KJV says, uh, I beseech you. And those words are urging us to do things. Urge, what does that mean though? It means to call to one side with the idea of wanting to help or be helped. And in this context, it's not simply a request. It's a plea. He's imploring. He's actually begging us to do something here. So Paul was not giving suggestions, but a divine standard. So it involves, first of all, Paul pleading, but notice, second of all, it involves our living. The word walk there. Now, it's not, it's not just talking about, you know, putting your feet on the ground and moving. It, it refers to your daily conduct. It refers to a day-by-day living. It's the really the theme of the last three chapters of Ephesians. And the word worthy there, so we're to have a, a worthy walk or worthy life, but the word worthy has the root meaning of balancing the scales. Some of you maybe have never seen one of the old scales, you know, where it's, you know, if you have one side heavier than the other, the other side goes up and they, and they move around. Uh, that's the idea there, where uh, one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what's on the other side of the scale. So that's the the idea there in the word worthy. And so the believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he's been called is one whose daily living corresponds to his high position as a child of God. So your your identity or your position is this child of God. Well, then on the other side of the scale here, the idea is, well, live like that. So it's it, it matches, in other words. So your, your practical living should be matching your spiritual position. I hope that makes sense. Maybe you can ask a question later if it doesn't. But uh, number three, so not only is it uh, involving Paul's pleading, our living, but uh, it involves God's saving. It involves God's saving. So the call to which you've been called, what is that? Well, it's the saving calling of God. And that's really important. God's the one who saves without God's calling, uh, without him choosing, like Ephesians 1 talks about, well, then our choosing him would be futile, as if that's possible anyway. But anyway, this is 
very important because if God did not call people to himself, no one would want to come to him. You think about it. What did we see at the beginning of chapter 2? That every unsaved person is at enmity with God. Every unsaved person is is dead in their trespasses and sins. So that this is a really high calling, a very important calling. And, and this is why the calling is so high and important, because God is the one saving. So that's all involved with the call to the worthy life. Hopefully that kind of helps answer where we're going in, in all the next verses here. So here's your second question. What are the then the characteristics of the worthy life? And so here Paul's going to give five essentials, five words for faithful Christian living. So obviously you can see, first of all, it starts with humility there in verse 2. So humility, uh, there's misunderstanding on this. Humility, though, uh, literally means to think or judge with lowliness. I, I found it interesting that the Romans, as well as the Greeks, didn't even have a word for humility. Didn't exist in their vocabulary. And so the very concept was so abhorrent to their way of thinking that they didn't even come up with a term to describe it. They didn't want to even think about it. So apparently the Greek term was coined by the Christians and, and a lot of people think it was probably coined by the Apostle Paul to describe this quality here, which uh, there, there wasn't a word available before then. So humility is, uh, notice it's, it's first, I think that's important here. Uh, it's considered one of the most foundational Christian virtues and so you, you can't even begin to please God here without humility. But you think about it, though. Humility is something that's terribly elusive to us. Because if focused on too much, it probably becomes pride. Humility, though, is, is a virtue to be highly sought, but it you, you never claimed. Uh, because once you try to claim it, it it's usually forfeited. Although humility is at the heart of the Christian character, no virtue is more foreign in today's world, in our world. And so the world, what does it do? It exalts pride. It doesn't exalt humble humbleness or humility. And so unfortunately, the church is often reflecting the world's perspective on this. Uh, hopefully you remember from a fee, or, sorry, Genesis that uh, the first sin was pride. Uh, even with uh, uh, the uh, angel Lucifer, we see in places like Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, the sin there was pride. And so then every sin that is uh, some way after that is, is kind of an extension of this pride. And so pride, what did it do? It led the angel Lucifer to exalt himself above his creator. Uh, you remember, hopefully you remember Isaiah chapter 14, what it, what did he say over and over again? He said, I will, I will, I will. So he, his will, in other words, was in opposition to the creator's will. And as a result, he was cast out of heaven. In Ezekiel 28, he, he says, I am a God. And so uh, God cast him from the mountain of God, it says. And so, and then you, then you come to Genesis chapter 3, and then, 
here here's this serpent, and we know based on Revelation that it's the devil and Satan there. Uh, and so we see in the he's tempting Adam and Eve. And the original sin there of Adam and Eve was basically pride. What were they doing? They're trusting in their own understanding above God's will and his understanding. So this is really important issue. The opposite of humility would be pride. So how do we get humility? How do we get it since it's so elusive? Well, here's a, here's three thoughts for you. Number one, it begins with proper self-awareness. It begins with proper self-awareness. So it begins with, in other words, an honest view of ourselves. And so the first thing the honest person sees in himself is, is not some spark of divinity, but you, you see your sin. And therefore, one of the marks of true humility, then, is going to be daily confession of our sin. But it, then, it, then it moves to involve Christ awareness. See, if you see your sin, then you, then you need to see the Savior. See, Christ is the only standard by which righteousness can be judged and by which pleasing God can be judged. And therefore, our goal then needs to be to walk in the same manner as he walked. And then it moves to humility involves God awareness. That's number three. So it involves God awareness. And so as you study Christ's life in the Gospels, you're going to come to see his human perfection. You're going to uh, also come to see his divine perfection. You're going to see that he is the God-man. He's both, uh, you know, both of these, God and man, in in the one person forever now. You're going to see his limitless power, his authority to heal diseases. Uh, you're going to see him casting out even demons, so his great power over them as well. And then the one of the things that really made the religious leaders of Israel angry was is, is when he was forgiving sins, which of course showed that he's God, right? He's God. Only God can forgive sins. And so, so it involves uh, starting there with the proper self-awareness, moving on to involving Christ-awareness and God-awareness. Uh, without that, you have no hope of humility. And so the second essential for faithful Christian living in our Bible here in verse 2, is gentleness. Now, a related word you might be fam also familiar with would be meekness. Uh, they are very similar ideas. So what is gentleness? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, because some people think gentleness is uh, timidity. Uh, in fact, uh, some sadly, many dictionaries define gentleness in, in terms of the word timid, or they might describe it like it's a deficiency in courage or spirit. But that is far from the biblical meaning. Uh, gentleness refers to that which is mild-spirited and self-controlled. Uh, the opposite would be uh, someone who's vindictive or, or is full of vengeance. And so gentleness is one of the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And, of course, it's something that should characterize every child of God. So we, we see in the first three chapters, who are we? We've been adopted in God's family. We're a child of God. Therefore, we need to show our Christ-likeness. And so the meaning of gentleness here has nothing to do with weakness, timidity. It's not indifference. It's 
not cowardice. In fact, uh, the, the very word gentleness was used of wild animals, particularly horses that were tamed. Uh, so they would take these horses and they would so-called break these horses. They would train these horses so they're no longer wild but useful. So an animal like that still has their strength. They still have their spirit. But what's different about them? Well, their will is now under the control of the the master. And so the horse can run just as fast, but he runs only when and where his master tells him to run, hopefully, right? <laughs> that's the point. And so that that's the, the same word that was used here for the word gentleness. And so uh, with that idea in mind, gentleness now is power under control. It's power under control. So a gentle person is uh, someone you might describe as normally quiet. He's someone who is soothing, someone who is self-controlled, mild-mannered. Uh, you're, not, you're not talking about somebody who's blowing his top, losing his, uh, his self-control. He's not an avenging, self-assertive, vindictive kind of a person. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example of this. I think, uh, for example, when the soldiers, you remember the, the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And uh, Peter draws out his sword to defend the Lord Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? <laughs> Rhetorical question. Of course he could. And that's in Matthew 26. So even in his humanity here, Jesus had access to infinite divine power, which of course he, he could have used to defend himself. Yet not once did he choose to do that, even though he had that available. And so his refusal here to use his divine resources is the supreme picture of gentleness. In other words, Jesus had great power but it was totally under control. And then there's a, a third characteristic mentioned here. So the third essential for faithful Christian living is patience. Patience. A third attitude here that's characterizing the Christian's worthy walk is patience, which uh, I think there's a nice progression here. Hopefully you can see the pattern moving from humility to gentleness to patience. So patience literally means someone who is long-tempered and is sometimes translated long-suffering in the Bible. The patient person, what is he doing? He's, he's enduring negative circumstances, but yet never gives into those circumstances. A good example of this in the Bible would be Abraham. Uh, we remember from Genesis that Abraham re received the promise of God. He had to wait uh, many, many years to see the fulfillment of God's promise. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, Thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. That's in Hebrews 6. So God had promised that Abraham's descendants would be a great nation. And yet he was not even given his son Isaac. Until, until many years later. So he, Isaac becomes the child of promise. 
And uh, how long did he have to wait? Well, you remember Abraham was 100 years old. But uh, Romans 4 tells us uh, <clears throat> that he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. That's a good example of patience. Uh, certainly we could look at others in the Bible as well. But that's an important characteristic of the worthy life. And so the basic Christian is accepting whatever other people do to him. He's not controlled by other people. He's patient with those who who hurt him. Who you, You're patient with people who slander you and who gossip about you and, and do other nasty things to you. And so the patient Christian is accepting, in other words, God's plan for everything. Uh, and, and you can do that without questioning God. You can do that even without grumbling and complaining. Amazing, isn't it? So he's, he doesn't complain when his calling seems less glamorous than somebody else's calling, or when uh, God decides to send you to some place that might be dangerous, or uh, to some place that's difficult. You're still able to be patient. The fourth characteristic or, or essential for faithful Christian living here is forbearing love. If you look at verse 2, you'll see this concept here in, in verse 2. Well, how, to, how my Bible says it this way. It's a bearing with one another in love. And so Peter, as I was looking at some cross-references on this forbearing love, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, he says that love covers a multitude of of sins. Well, what is the idea there? Is that love is kind of throwing a blanket over the sins of others, not to justify other people's sin or excuse them, but to keep the sin from becoming any more known than necessary. That's your goal, by the way. When you're you're allowing love to cover a multitude of sins, you want to you want to keep the uh, the transmission, if you will, the the knowing of that. As low as possible. And then in Proverbs 10, verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So what is forbearing love like? It's it's taking the abuse from other people while continuing to love them. I know, I know what some of you are thinking, because I've thought this. Like, uh, you say, I can't do that. That person has injured me and hurt me so much, so many times. There is no way I can continue to love that person. That's not possible. Well, it is. Uh, it is possible to take the abuse from others while continuing to love them. And that's why this, this love here is, is the agape love. In, in Greek, it's, it's agape. And, and only agape love gives continuously and unconditionally. It's unqualified and unselfish love. It's a love that willingly gives whether it receives in return or not. So it, it's unconditional. It's not based on what the other person is doing. It is unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodness. It is love that goes out even to our enemies. That is forbearing love here. And uh, and even in, according to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, this kind of love is even able to pray for our persecutors, pray for our enemies. And so if you follow this progression here, you'll, you're moving on to number 5, the fifth essential for Christian living 
you could say the result of this would be unity, and it is unity, as verse 3 tells us. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let me just tell you two things about this unity. Number one, notice that the unity is of the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Uh, That means the unity is produced by the Holy Spirit. And it also means that it is a unity the Holy Spirit's already given to those who are in Christ. You already have this unity. And so the, the ultimate outcome from those other characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, and the forbearing love, is then, then you now have this eagerness, this z- zealousness, this passion to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's the only way that's going to be possible. But notice something else about this unity here is that this unity is to be preserved. It is to be preserved. You are, in other words, look at it. It says you are to be eager, which has this basic meaning to make haste to do this, to have this passion, this zealousness. It's a holy zeal that demands full dedication on your part. You can't ignore this. You have to be passionate about this. Make haste. To, to fulfill this is what God is telling you. And so per- preservation of this unity should be the diligent and the constant concern of every believer. Not just the pastor, not just the deacons, not just the elders, uh, not just the, the so-called mature Christians, but every believer should be doing this. And so Paul's not speaking, by the way, of, of organizational unity, such as the sort of things that are produced or or, uh, promoted in denominations or in the ecumenical movement. Paul's speaking of the inner and the universal unity of the Spirit by which every true believer is bound to every other true believer. And so this unity of the Spirit is working in the lives of the believers. It does not come from the outside, but it's something that is coming from the inside. And then it's it's shown, it's manifested through the those inner qualities, the, the, the first four qualities there, such as humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. How, you say? How? Well, by faithfully walking, living in a manner worthy of God's calling. You're displaying Christ to the world by your oneness in him and to each other. And so the world's always seeking, but never finding unity. It's it's eluding them, in other words. All the peace treaties of the world and the agreements are failing to bring peace, and they always will. Uh, There is not, cannot be any peace for the wicked, the Bible says. And so as long as self is at the center of their peace treaties and agreements, well then, there's never going to be unity. And so as long as our feelings then and and our rights are our chief concern, there will never be unity. So how do you have unity? Well, where does it start, my friends? What's the first characteristic? It's not self. It's it's in humility. And that's where it starts. So there'll never be unity without those characteristics. So my friends, let me ask you, are you maintaining this unity? 
Are you maintaining it? Are you eager? Are you making haste? Are, are you passionate about this? <laughs> we need to be. It's very important to God. And so humility here is giving birth to this gentleness, and then gentleness gives birth to patience. Patience gives birth to forbearing love. And then all four of those characteristics there are preserving the unity of the Spirit. Well, there's a third question that leads us to in the text. What's the cause? What's what's the basis, the foundation of the worthy life? How how is this even possible? And it's interesting as you as you look at those verses four, five, and six that everything that relates to salvation, the uh, the church and the kingdom of God is based on the concept of unity, as reflected in Paul's use of seven ones in those three verses. Seven ones. God loves the number seven. Uh, there's no coincidence there. He, he's designed it this way. And so the cause or the basis of outward oneness is coming from inner oneness. Practical oneness is based on spiritual oneness. And so to emphasize the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, what is Paul doing? He's reciting the features of oneness that are relevant here to our doctrine and life. So notice Paul does not develop the, the areas of oneness. He's, he's just kind of listing them. Uh, and, and so those areas, of course, we'll, we'll look at them. Well, here's there's the first one on your screen. Uh, the first one has to do with the body, but then he goes on to talk about spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and God and Father. And so his focus is on the oneness of God's nature as the basis of our commitment to live as one. How are we to have unity? Well, it's 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 coming from God Himself. Ultimately, He He's the source of this oneness. God is one. The Bible says, therefore, we can also be one. But that's Let's focus on the Trinity here, uh, because it, it mentions all of them. And so, first of all, notice it, it it comes from unity of the Spirit. What's the cause of the worthy life? It starts with the unity of the Spirit. And then there's three points the Bible's mentioning in regard to unity of the Spirit. So, first of all, we see there that the believers are unified in one body. One body. What's What's the body there? Well, this is a, a, a body of believers. It's referring to the church, the, the body of Christ. It's composed of every saint who's ever trusted or will trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. So there is uh, no denominational or geographical or ethnic or racial body. Uh, there is no Gentile, Jewish, male, female, slave, or freeman body. Uh, there's only... Christ's body. That's why it's one body, and, and the unity of that body is the heart here of the book of Ephesians. Uh, so you could say the theme of Ephesians is unity. And so, yes, there's unity in the Spirit. That That is the cause of this worthy life. It's starting here with there's only one body, but no, number two, notice there is one Spirit. Uh, the, the Greek word for Spirit there is pneuma, uh, if you ever look at a systematic theology book, you often see pneumatology coming from this Greek word for Holy Spirit. So what, what spirits are talking about? Well, 
most Bibles uh, translate that with a capital S spirit, and I think that's appropriate. So the, the Holy, it's the Holy Spirit of God. What does he do? He possesses every believer and therefore is the inner unifying force of this body. And so believers are individual temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3. And so we are now collectively being fitted together. And Ephesians tells us we're growing into this holy temple of the Lord. We're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so the Spirit is given as a pledge, as we saw back in Ephesians 1 verse 14. In other words, he's the divine engagement ring who guarantees that every believer is going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can count on it because of this one spirit who is the pledge, who is the guarantee. And then three, uh, number three there, we see believers are unified in one hope. So put all those three together, one body, one spirit, one hope. That That is the unity in the spirit, and that's the first cause of the worthy life. So what hope are we talking about here? Well, notice that it mentions that your hope belongs to your call. In other words, the, your hope's coming out of your call. Our calling to salvation is ultimately a calling to Christ-like eternal perfection and glory. So in Christ, we have different gifts, we have different ministries, we have different places of service, but there's only one calling. And that calling is, according to Ephesians 1.4, to be holy and blameless before God. And we are to be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And that's going to occur when, ultimately, when we see the glorified Christ. First John 3 tells us when we see him, we'll be made like him. And so praise God, it is the Spirit who has placed all believers into this one body, and he's the one guaranteeing the future glory. So there is unity in the Spirit. That's the first cause of the worthy life. But we move on to the second person of the Trinity here. We we also see in verse 5, there is unity in God the Son. And uh, again, there's three things mentioned in our text. I don't think that's a mistake. But we see, first of all, that believers are unified in this one Lord. And you say, well, which Lord's it talking about? Well, the Greek word is kurios. So that's a word referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is our Savior. So that, that's who it's referring to. That's why we know it's referring to Jesus Christ. And so second of all, believers are unified in one faith. Well, think about it. There's wonderful progression going on in the text. If there's one Lord, then of course there, there has to be one faith. There, there has to be only one faith. And Paul's not referring here, by the way, to the act of faith by which a person is saved or the continuing faith that's producing the right living, but rather he's talking about this body of doctrine that's revealed in your New Testament. So in true Christianity, there is only one faith. The faith, as Jude says, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints and for which we are to contend earnestly for. And so our one, our, our one faith here is, is dealing with the content of the revealed Word of God. That is the one faith. And so you, you need to know the Word of God, of course, then, 
to know what that one faith is. And so if if believers have one Lord, naturally coming out of that, there's going to be one faith. Notice what comes next. Believers are unified in one baptism. You're unified in one baptism. So because there's this one Lord and one faith, there can only be one baptism among believers. Which baptism is that? There's some confusion on this. Well, in verse 4, it's referring to spiritual baptism, by which all believers are placed into the body by the Holy Spirit. But the baptism of verse 5 seems to be referring to water baptism, which is the common way a believer would publicly confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's your identity in Christ and his church. So water baptism was extremely important in the early church, should be important to us. Uh, not, Of course, not as a means of salvation or some special blessing, but as a testimony of identity with and unity in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's one reason it should be public as well. But believers were not baptized in the name of a local church or some prominent uh, person uh, or some uh, elder of the church or even an apostle, but only in the name of Jesus Christ. And so when, when we baptize them, that's why we say, uh, actually, we, we mention all three persons of the Godhead. But but those who, by this one Lord, are in this one faith, what are they doing then? You're, you're testifying to the unity in one baptism. And so this is the second cause of the worthy life, that coming from the unity of the Spirit, and second of all, the unity of the Son. And then last one mentioned here is the, the other person in the Godhead is God the Father. So there's unity in God the Father, as verse 6 says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so if you know your Old Testament well, you know the the basic doctrine of Judaism has always been Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, a very important verse for them, which says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so God's oneness is just as foundational to Christianity. Uh, and of course, even Jesus says that in the New Testament. But the, the New Testament is revealing the more complete truth that the one God is in three persons. So he manifests himself in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet he's still one God. And so God the Father here is often used in Scripture as the most comprehensive divine title, by the way. Uh, though it is clear from many New Testament texts, he is never separated in nature or power from uh, God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's point, by the way, is, is not to separate the persons of the Godhead, uh, but he's noting their unique roles. See, they, they have different functions that they perform, in other words. But yet, the, the focus is on their unity in relation to each other and in relation to the church. So don't, don't lose sight of the unity here. They are one God. And so there is one church. So as you're thinking about this, this wonderful unity here being the cause of the worthy life, let me just read to you a quote. I, I love this. Because John Stott 
talks about the the Trinity here as the basis for church church unity. And what does he do? He he's going to sum it up like this. So so taking this and summing it up, here's what he says. I'll put the quote here for you. He says, uh, there can be only one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? then so is the unity of the church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead, end quote. So this is really important as we, we think about the what, what's, what's our, our position is we're a child of God. And that leads us to this, this unity, to this, to this oneness. That's how we're to act. And so, my friends, the church is God's church. And of course, the church is is not some just sh- some sh- social program. It's not a building. It's composed of God's people. It's the result of God's work. Why does it exist? It exists for God's glory. So that needs to be our vision. Is that your vision? It should be. And if it is, we're, we're, we will not find it difficult to preserve the unity if that is our vision. So we need to understand these glorious truths so that we can live out God's vision for the church. And so may God enable your life to match your position. Let me pray. And then uh, let's just think about some some highlights, some questions. Uh, Maybe, I don't know if there's something there that's hard for you to understand. We can talk about these things. So let me just pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're, we're thankful for how Ephesians shows us a, our spiritual position in Christ. We're thankful we can see uh, these glorious truths. We're thankful for your grace and your love and your mercy, which uh, we don't deserve any of that. And so may we love you in return. Would you open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from your uh, from your word today? May we understand just how important this unity is. And so may we be eager to maintain this unity that you've given to your people, to your church. So cause us to understand it and then to live out appropriate, uh, an appropriate, accurate, worthy life coming out from our calling here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.